1: everybody and welcome once again to the show brought to you by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives today we're speaking to one of the most decorated cyclists Australia has ever produced. In fact, Simon Gerrans has a trophy cabinet the vast majority of the pro peloton would envy. A dual national champion and a five-time winner of the Tour de Nardanda. The man known as Gero has claimed fable classics like Milan-San Remo, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, along with stage wins at all three Grand Tours. The Tour de France, where he's worn the yellow jersey, the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta Espana. And to think... He found the sport by accident back in the day and back home on the family farm in Mansfield. Simon Gerrans, welcome and thanks a lot for your time.
2: Hey, thank you, Sam. It's a, it's a pleasure pleasure to be here and, and pleasure to chat.
1: Now, where do we find you right now? Because in your old line of work, of course, as a pro cyclist, you'd be travelling the world, often living out of a suitcase. And you're almost as well travelled now with uh, no bike, essentially, a briefcase and probably a, a laptop for company, aren't you?
2: Yeah, that's right. I think uh, if you wound the clock back a few years, I probably would have been freezing somewhere <laughs> in France, racing Paris Nice or something like that. I, I, I saw the images of the, of the first stage kicking off overnight, and I was thinking, "Oh, I, I never used to enjoy that one." Um, <laughs> starting Paris Nice up in the, in the north uh, of France with uh, cold and windy conditions, but no, these days I'm back in Melbourne, based here now, living with my my wife and kids. But as you said, traveling a lot, uh, traveling a lot through. of the commentary work i'm doing with with sbs but also running a a european-based business called the service course where we have a group of shops uh, spread out uh, over europe so in france uh, spain and in the uk so it's a cycling related business we have retail shops uh, we have cafes and we have a travel business as well as an online presence as well so busy juggling plenty of balls at the moment um and as you said traveling a lot And, but mostly without a bike these days.
1: Yeah. I want to come back to the service course though, because it's going absolutely gangbusters, but a massive, massive career. I mean, the long journey even to get there, the wild success that followed, the inevitable disappointment, of course, along the way, the frustration, the injuries. How do you look back on it all in retirement, Simon? I mean, if you are to summarize, is the cup full?
2: You know, I look back and think back on my cycling career now, and it feels like a lifetime ago already. It's only been a few years since I stepped out of the professional peloton but it feels like a movie that I watched on, on a flight. You know, it just it, it, it feels like I'm watching it from the outside, uh, yeah. looking back in. And initially, and I still get to the scenario where I might be at a bike race and, and someone will come up to me and go, are you Simon Gerens? And my automatic response is, well, I used to be. Because it really feels like it was a then and, and now scenario. because Life is, is so different these days. But I definitely look back on my career fondly. I'm really proud of my achievements. Um, I had a couple of, you know, fantastic results that I'm, that I'm really proud of. Had a couple of very near uh, big results too, um, but that comes with it. You know, you win some and you lose some throughout.
1: Almost like a, another life in a way then. So the big races, you know, you're living in, in, um, in Monaco, you're living in Andorra now, you're in Melbourne, there's four kids, as work. Not that one's better than the other, but they are so different, aren't they? It must, must as you say, almost feel like another existence. And, and at times, I'm sure potentially initially a little bit hard to process. Such a such a drastic change in
2: lifestyle. I'm probably still processing it, Sam, <laughs> and I think that's something that a lot of professional athletes—that's a transition that they go through from their professional career, where they're purely focused and living a very self-centered life, as you will, because really your sole responsibility in life is is to to perform on on the sporting field, and then you you step out of that environment, and you step into the big wild world where there's a whole bunch of expectations on you. Um, so, yeah, there it is a very, very big contrast.
1: I'm just, just thinking about it out loud, and we'll explore each step of your journey soon, but I'm forever struck, speaking to people like you, the planets almost, they have to align to get someone to where you got to. I mean, the right people at the right time, the door opening here and there, your dedication, your hunger, the talent, obviously, and then obviously the luck on top of that. I don't want to get too deep here too early, but do you think you were almost destined to make it, or or was it like in in an athlete athlete's term, almost like winning winning Powerball? Or did you think you were meant to get there the whole way along?
2: Uh, I don't know if I thought that when I once I found cycling that this is this is me, this is this is what I'm destined to do. Um, because I probably went through that whole phase of my career, even when I was at the very top of the sport, with absolute imposter syndrome. It's like, look at the people around me. Look at the environment I'm in. Think back to where I've come from. Should I be here the whole time? So I, didn't, I never really felt like, oh, this is my destiny, and I've found cycling, and, and this is my calling uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I really went through my career just taking it one step at a time, setting my my goals and my objectives slightly bigger Mm. um at each pathway through the journey
1: you're a big goal setter weren't you like it's funny talking to people that, that have lived your life or similar men women some are goal setters and some just take it as it comes but you were one to make a plan and to follow through on that plan weren't you
2: yeah very much so uh right from right from the start whether it was a big goal was to to win the, the Mansfield club race against six other participants. Or it was, you know, planning to win a stage of the Tour de France and the preparation that goes into that. All the way through that whole journey, I was very, very goal oriented, And funnily enough, reflecting back over my career, the hardest parts of, of my sort of 20-year cycling career were those short periods of time where I didn't have a goal, where I was mm. rudderless. And mostly that was off the back of injury when you were injured and you didn't have your prognosis yet you didn't know how long it was going to take to come back from injury so you're really without a goal um so yes going back to your question I was very very goal focused
1: so you mentioned where you came from so let's go back to that you're raised in Mansfield your family has a farm up there uh country Victoria obviously the foot of Mount Buller in the high country about 200 clicks from Melbourne and young Simon was mad for motocross though wasn't he not cycling
2: yeah I was a super active kid uh and very competitive. Whatever I was uh, trying my hand at, I wanted to compete and just test myself against other people. But my real passion growing up as a, as a country kid was riding motorbikes. I grew up on a, on a cattle farm. So I had bikes around the farm and then got into some racing, had some family members. My uncle raced uh, previously. My dad was into motorbikes. So that led me into racing motocross just at a regional level. And I was super passionate about it. I loved it. I wasn't overly talented at it. Um, managed to have a, a couple of crashes as as you do and injured my knee uh, doing that and that going through rehab with my knee uh, introduced me to, to cycling and, and that was really my segue into the sport.
1: Was it a torn ACL at 15 and a full reconstruction? Have I got that right? And the age right?
2: Yes, well at 15 you got the age right but it wasn't just an ACL. I also did both the, the cruciate ligaments um, as well so I tore three out of the four ligaments at 16, and for good measure went back 12 months later and tore the other one as well. So by the age of 16, I'd torn all four ligaments in my uh, in my left knee. And after the second knee reconstruction, um, that's when the surgeon really sat me aside and, and said, listen, if you injure your knee once more, you're going to need a walking stick to get around. So that wasn't too appealing at, at 16 years of age, uh, and that was probably the the shock I needed to to step away from the motorbikes and and into cycling.
1: Surely if the doctor wasn't saying that, mum and dad were saying, now Simon, come on, maybe it's time to try something else.
2: Yeah, but your kid, you don't really take
1: that much notice <laughs> what your mum and dad say. So you need to hear it from someone else. Okay. A bit loose up there on the farms in Mansfield, mate. Okay, all right. You're listening to this is your journey. It's thanks to Tober Brothers Feudals, a family-owned business since 1934. So as you just heard, Simon turns to cycling for his rehab. But it was his neighbour, who seemed to go missing for months at a time every winter, who would unlock his potential. That's up next. Hello, it's great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, and we're chatting to champion Australian cyclist and seven-time Grand Tour stage winner, Simon Guerin. So, Simon, you're out on the streets around Mansfield, on the pushy, to get the knee going again, correct? This is your, this is your rehab, this is what you've been prescribed. So, even at this point, were you still clinging to some sort of hope that you're going to get back on the, on the motocross and have at it?
2: No, actually... At that point in time, once uh, I'd gone through the, the process of the second knee reconstruction, I was starting my my rehab mostly on a bike. And that rehab started with quite literally five minutes a day on a, on an exercise bike. And that was just to get my knee moving again. And I remember I had to have my seat up really high because I didn't have the flexibility in my knee to get across the top of the pedal stroke. That's how basic it was when I first started. But the pipe dream of being a, a motocross rider, that had, that had gone by that point in time. I, I'd sold up everything. I I got rid of the motorbike. I got rid of
0: all the gear, so the temptations was
1: no longer there. Okay. Uh, Someone took an interest in your change of uh, bike, though, didn't they? Now, neighbours aren't overly close in that part of the world, but the neighbouring farm to yours uh, was owned by a bloke who was a family friend. I think he'd run cattle for you, I think, on on his land from time to time. But as I touched on, he disappeared for months on end, I think you've described this in the past. He'd go missing, and he'd come back with this amazingly good, deep suntan. Now, who, who was he?
2: Yeah, that's right. So I was very fortunate that a family friend, as you mentioned, was Phil Anderson. And Phil Anderson, I had no appreciation at the time of what he was achieving and the pathway that he was creating for Australian cyclists in Europe. But he was a pioneer of, of Australian cycling and and really dominating on the world stage. And for me, he was just, you know, like you said, Phil, the guy who had the farm next door. Yeah. My dad used to lease his, his property to run a few of our, our cattle on. Um, and he was just a, a family friend. He used to come over for barbecues. Uh, and whatnot every summer that he was back in Australia. And when he could see that I was taking an interest in cycling and using cycling for rehab, um, at about that point in time, he was retiring from his professional racing career and completing his coaching levels. And as a part of one of his coaching levels, he needed to write a program for another cyclist. So he offered to write that program for me. So quite literally from rehab, starting with not much more than five minutes a day, I had... Australia's greatest ever cyclist at the time, riding a training program for me to get into the sport. And then also another thing that Phil was doing, he was hosting uh, Australian-based training camps where he was inviting people you could pay to come along and, and spend a week uh, training with Phil. And he was hosting one of those camps at a place called Pinnacle Valley, which is at the base of Mount Buller. And he offered me uh, to come along and join the training camp and basically help out, you know, maybe I was filling up water bottles or doing whatever I was doing, but it meant I I got the opportunity to join the group and and do a bit of riding every day, and that's what introduced me to sort of riding in a group. We did a little, I think we did a little time trial up Mount Boiler and joined a local club race, and that was my introduction to the, really the sport of cycling more so than just riding on my own in the countryside.
1: It's hard not to think of that as fate, isn't it? When you got the first Australian or the first non European, in fact, to ever wear the, the yellow jerseys living right next door to you as you dip your toe in the water with cycling. It's it's amazing. Almost destiny. And then you fall so deep in love with this sport. What is it? 18 months. I think it was a year and a half. You're on the plane to Italy to have a real crack at it in the under 23s. Yeah, that's
2: right. So um you can say I'm probably a little bit obsessive compulsive when it comes to things like this. And I love the competition side of cycling and I love the layers of the sport. There was just so much to to aim for. Like I said earlier in our chat, it was you know initially aiming to win the local club race. And then it was going to do something uh, more regional, maybe one of the other country towns. And then it was making the trip down to the Big Smoke and doing some racing in, in Melbourne as well to the Bay crits, to the national series sort of races, until eventually the next step I knew I had to make was to go abroad. So it was only, as you said, eighteen months or so after actually starting the starting cycling that I was on a plane to Italy uh, to to chase the next level of competition. And that was the under twenty three series in in Italy.
1: It is amazing this. So you're 19. So we, we deal a lot with the football codes here and we get a lot of homesick draftees who can't possibly stay in SA or WA or Queensland because they have to get back to Victoria and vice versa. And I know cycling does come with an expectation of big travel and, and the footy codes do not. But here is you going to the other side of the world, different language, must have been incredibly daunting. And, and then obviously a super tough adjustment on top of it all
2: it was obviously a huge adjustment growing up in in country Victoria to to taking off to a completely new country, and when I look back, I had no idea what I was what I was getting myself myself into. I didn't I could speak two words of Italian. I thought it was probably cappuccino and pizza, and I was getting on a plane. I just knew someone was going to be the other end in Milan to pick me up and take me to where I was living. I knew a little bit about the team I was going to. It was a small Italian club team where there were a couple of foreign riders and there was one other Australian in that team as well, actually. So I knew I was going to have someone to, to speak to uh, for company. But it was a sink or swim scenario. You very quickly come up to speed in that environment. You very quickly learn to integrate into a team, learn to speak the language and, and get involved. And, and that's what I did. I just embraced that environment.
1: And here's the thing about what is largely an individual sport. So yeah, you're in an under twenty-three team, a bit of a sharehouse arrangement probably. But if you want to communicate at the dinner table, then then you have to learn. And and out on the bike, there's so much self-discipline needed, isn't there? Even even at that age. So not like a footballer where they know if you're not turning up to the club on training days. It's largely it would have been largely on you, I'd imagine, even at this time to be self-driven and to put the work in yourself.
2: It it definitely was. And like you said you're out on the training track largely on your own as a cyclist. So it's one of the things that I love about the sport, the harder you work, the more you get out of it. So there's a direct correlation and being committed to the sport and, and putting in the hard yards and training and doing everything else outside of that as well as with your nutrition, your recovery, everything you can do to be a better athlete. It, it automatically results in, in better performances on, on, on the racetrack. So I love that side of the sport. Um, I worked incredibly hard. And I was very committed to it right from the start there. Um, so I got some results in my first year abroad racing in this smaller Italian club team. And that was the the spark um, that probably ignited the flame that, that made me think, actually, maybe I can make something of this. I need to aim again for the next level. Mm.
1: So the, all these things are building up, I imagine, little layers of resilience every time. And you're getting stronger and stronger me- mentally as much as anything. And then you go through the under 23 ranks uh, and I think you might've even represented Australia at under 23 level, at least you're with the team based in Italy. But by the time you were of age, you were overlooked, weren't you? For what you didn't get a world tour contract, a professional contract initially. So I'm not sure how much of a setback that was for you. Was that ever a moment for you to think, mm, geez, maybe I'll go home and try something else.
2: Yeah, my, yeah absolutely. In the fact that, I come out of the under 23 category in cycling. Now the 23 is a really important category because at that point in time, all the talent scouts of the professional teams they're looking to the under 23 category to sign that next, that, that next wave of, of, of riders coming through. And I got to the end of my under 23 years and I still wasn't that experienced in the sport. I'd only been racing for a small number of years comparatively to the guys I was competing against. They it may have been racing for 10 or more seasons so I wasn't quite mature enough as a cyclist, and also at that time, there were a lot of of the highest level teams. I think it was called the you know the World Tour, what we call the World Tour teams now. A couple of teams folded, so it meant there were a lot of good riders on the market with professional experience. So I quite simply wasn't good enough uh, to get a look in at the professional at the professional um, category. So you know I went back and and I signed with a very small. Uh, Division three team it was actually a Norwegian-based team. So I was living in France and traveling all over Europe for this little Norwegian team. That team lost their sponsor kind of early in the season, so it left us with a very sporadic mm. racing program. At the end of the two thousand and three season, it was the year that I turned twenty-three, so I'm out of this uh, under twenty-three category. Um, I really got to the end of the season. I didn't have a contract. I didn't have very any really significant results to, to look back on. A few sort of glimpses of success here and there, and I came back and I raced the the final part of the year on the Australian calendar, and those races incorporated the the Ball Classic, the Melbourne to Warner uh, the the Jaco Herald Sun Tour. So I came back off a off a season racing in Europe, and when I dominated the the Australian end of season. I won the Ball Classic, I won the Melbourne to Warner uh, I took the yellow jersey in the in the first stage of the Sun Tour, and that had ignited a bit of interest from a couple of American based teams, actually. And they're like, how is this kid not got a contract? Maybe we should try and find something for him mm. in the U S and I actually had an offer on the table to go and race it. Probably what was the highest profile, uh, American team at the time. But I knew that wasn't the pathway to the next to the high level of the sport. For me, it was all about Europe. So I hung out. I didn't sign that American deal. I continued to race the, the Australian calendar prepared really well. Throughout the summer, I did a whole preseason without a team to go to, but constantly on the phone talking with different agents, talking with you know different teams, trying to convince someone to give me an opportunity, but it just wasn't coming about. So I actually finished that 2003 season as the the best ranked unsigned rider in the world rankings. I think I was in you know around 200 or something like that. Yeah. But I was I scored accumulated more points doing low level professional races without a team that a lot of the professionals had racing in that category all year long. I kind of felt like I was the next one to get that opportunity. I really deserved that that shot. And I was at the level by that point in time where I felt I could justify a a professional level contract. It didn't come about until I was actually over at the Tour Down Under. I was racing in a composite Australian team. I was considering my options about going back to racing on an amateur level in Italy when I was offered a a spot on on a French amateur team. And I'd done a little bit of racing in France the year before with the uh, with the Division Three Norwegian team. It was a style of racing I liked, and also I just did the did the numbers. There are more professional French teams in the circuit than of any other nationality. So I thought, well, if I can perform well in France, maybe I'm a shot of um, I'm a chance of getting a look in with one of these French professional teams. So the catch was this team didn't have any budget. They didn't have anything to pay me to go over there. It was a friend of the team. Was actually a friend of the sport and helped a number of Australians out over the years. Maybe you come across him, uh, Jeff Kinney. So he lived in this area in in France where he had a spare room in his apartment. It was close to a, where this amateur team based where I could have the opportunity. So I quite literally had to sell everything I owned in Australia. I sold my car to pay for an airplane ticket. I made sure it was a return ticket in case it, it really went pear shaped and I was going to get stuck over there. But this is but chips I literally in. Got over,
1: this is Chipsy. I literally.
2: Yeah, this was all in. And this was my last crack at it. I knew um, I had to give this one more shot. So I basically sold up everything, bought an airplane ticket to France, got over there, The team they had a budget to pay me, I think it was the equivalent of 50 Australian dollars per race. I finished. So if I didn't even get to the end of the race, I I wasn't getting paid for that one, (laughs) um, with a maximum of about 10 races per month. So that was all I was uh, in a position to be able to earn for this team. But it wasn't really going to cost me much to be there. You know, they were going to cover my cost of being there. But yeah. I basically had uh, no salary. But there were some bonuses if I won a race or if I finished on the podium. Um, there was a bit of extra cash coming my way. So it was literally everything in for this last season. So I got over to France and I dominated the the French amateur scene that year. And by the end of that amateur season in France, I was the best ranked. French uh, rider on the French amateur circuit, with I think double the points to to second place, and I had a number of uh, of French professional teams interested in in signing me for the following year, and I ended up taking the first opportunity that came along, um, which was with ag 2 a team that still exists mm. these days. So I signed with ag 2 I did what they call a stagiaire uh, ride at the end of that 2004 season, where you do a couple of guest guest appearances with the, with the professional team. They liked what they saw. They offered me a contract. And by 2005, I was racing the Professional Pelican and lining up in the Tour de France.
1: That is absolutely amazing, isn't it? Like you'd finally made it. And yet really in the grand scheme of things, you'd done two fifths of bugger all. It shows you how hard it was to actually get there. It's just incredible. So as you heard it, Months after liquidating everything to get on the flight back to Europe, one last shot, Simon Gerrans is racing at the Tour de France. The next chapter of Simon's incredible career is up next on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you enjoyed this
1: week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is Milan Sanarimo and Liège-Best-On-Liège champion Simon Guerin. So, Simon, what what is the Tour de France like? Must be a question you get asked all the time. What was your first impression of this circus of an event? The size, the interest, the the media, the level of rider, everything about it. I mean, in your case, Lance, Ulrich, Basso, Cadell, Vinokurov, some of the biggest, famous, notorious, infamous riders of all time. What was your first taste of that um, 21 day circus like?
2: I was completely blown away by my first experience at the Tour de France. I was so nervous and so excited to to be there. I remember lining up on the on the start ramp. The opening stage was, a, was an individual time trial of around 20 kilometers long. And I was so nervous to be there. My heart rate, while I was on the start ramp before even pushing the, uh, a pedal in fury, was 190 beats a minute. Uh, I think once I actually got racing, my heart rate settled down again. <laughs> uh, we we're supposed to do the opposite. So there's a lot of nervous energy involved in in being at my first Tour de France because I was surrounded by the the icons of the sport, as as you mentioned. And my first experience at the Tour de France was the last one that Lance Armstrong won before he went into retirement. And like you said, there were guys like Jan Ulrich there. I think Cadel Evans was making his debut with that Tour de France as well. So, yeah, they were the big names of the sport. And you're going shoulder to shoulder with them. But needless to say, I think for the first two and a half weeks of the race, I struggled to get off the back of the peloton. It was so fast. I was just so blown away by the speed of racing. Um, it definitely was a, an experience I'll never forget.
1: Oh, I, I, I words never do it justice. But when I ask, can you describe the intensity of the of a peloton, particularly on the opening couple of days of the Tour de France? It's almost an, in, an impossible question to ask you. But a young punk from Mansfield to get any respect in the peloton at that time, like those guys that you mentioned. I mean, they're just like, who's this guy? I mean, can you can you paint the picture of what it's like stepping into that sort of environment?
2: Well, for me, i I'd done a couple of big of the big one-day races early in that season and the, the classics that are coming up in the next mm-hmm. few weeks funnily enough and the first really big classic i did was the tour of flanders and experiencing tour of flanders i was blown away by the speed it was you know you're averaging 50 50 plus kilometers an hour for, for hours of racing and then when i got to the tour de france it was like that literally every day for three weeks the racing was just so fast and everybody have the absolute best in the world at this sport, all in the absolute best condition for this race and, and targeting uh, a, a result there because a result at the Tour de France, it can it can change your career and, and change your life in, in as a result of that. So, yeah, getting in there and getting amongst it, you know, I was an, uh, a newbie on one of the smaller teams in the race and probably had, getting very little respect from the Peloton. I knew the other Australians in the race and they'd known my, my journey to the to the Tour de France, so it was always good to to catch up with them. But it, probably for me, it wasn't until the the third week of the Tour de France, it was actually stage seventeen, where I finally managed to get myself off the back of the peloton and towards the front and into a breakaway. And it was, I think, the longest stage of the Tour de France. But I managed to get into the breakaway of of seventeen riders, which got slowly whittled down, uh, a couple at a time, to a remaining group of of four going for the victory. And I finished third in the stage um, in my debut tour. So all of a sudden, all those guys that were th- were asking, oh, who's this, this young Aussie guy on the French team, that's when they realised that okay, yeah, he's got something, and and he's probably he's probably justifies the spot here.
1: Amazing, you do adapt pretty quickly. I mean, those early years in the pro peloton. So credit Agricole, uh, Savello test team, Team Sky. You sign with you end up winning a stage of the Tour de France. You win a stage at the Giro, the Vuelta, You win your first national championship, and then I want to take you to a moment where Australia's first and only World Tour team finally comes to fruition and they're trying to sign riders. Was it something you immediately wanted to be a part of or did you take some convincing?
2: No, I was cautious. I was very cautious about uh, leaving Team Sky, which is at that point was one of the biggest budget teams in, in the sport. Uh, they were a startup team. So I was there for the first two years to going to another startup team, because this would have been my third startup team in a row even though it was Jerry Ryan that was backing it and a guy that I would known for a lot of years and I've been part of many of the programs that he'd supported at that point in cycling, there were so many teams that would be spoken about writers would sign there and then they would never get off the ground. The sponsorship wouldn't come through or they couldn't get the starts or whatever it may be. And, and it would never come to fruition. So I was really cautious about going to a team that was a concept and not a, a, an established, an established team. So it took a little while for me to, to to sign up. I wasn't one of the very early signings of of Green Edge, and it was actually late in the season um, that I that I eventually eventually signed that contract. And what convinced me to go there in the end was really the opportunity and what the team was going to be targeting, and also the group of riders that had signed up to the team. Green Edge were really pitching really pitching themselves as the team that were going to be targeting one day races and stages of Grand Tours mm. uh, in those early years. And that's what I was good at. That's where I had my best results in my career. Being part of the Team Sky formation, era was all about winning stage and winning overall in the Grand Tours. And I could be a, a valuable team member in that environment, but that's not really what my calling was. That's not really what I was good at. So I eventually decided to, to join Edge, and... Once I got in that environment, I realized it was something pretty unique. The culture that was being created by the group of riders that was there was something I'd never been a part of before at any other teams. So it was a unique environment and one that worked out really well for me because I really relished the opportunity of racing with a group of guys that I would call my mates, you know, on and off the bike. And being at that point in my career where I was mature enough, I was experienced enough. And ready to go for those big wins.
1: Yeah. It coincided perfectly with a golden time in your career. You're early 30s. You signed for Orica Green Edge. Let's go straight to Milan San Remo. One of the, the biggest races in the, in the world. Funnily enough, coming up in, in a couple of weeks' time. You're coming to the line with Fabian Cancellara and the Shark, Vincenzo Nibali. You've got time to think about how this is going to play out in a three-up sprint. What are you thinking in the last couple of Ks of this particular
2: race? Sam, you're not thinking at all. You're reacting. And at that point in time, when the chips are down and you're racing for, you know, what would be the, one of the biggest results of, of my career, you're not contemplating what if I do this, what if I do that, what if he does this, what if he does that, you're quite simply reacting. And that's where the thousands upon thousands of hours you work to, to put yourself in this scenario and put yourself in these finishes, that really pays off because you cannot contemplate for too long. You cannot afford to even think about what's going to happen because the moment will pass. So at that point in time, coming into the finish of a, a 300 kilometre bike race was two of the absolute icons of the sport. I was the out and out underdog. No one would have put me in with a, with a shot of winning that race. Um, but I knew the opportunity was there, and I knew I had the legs to do it, so I was able to pull it off.
1: Jeez, and doesn't it put Green Edge on the map as well? It was a magnificent, uh, magnificent afternoon on the Italian coastline. I want to go forward to the 2013 Tour de France. It was magical, the Centenary edition. You win Green Edge's first Tour stage on stage three. You you didn't celebrate, but you got Peter Sagan on the line. Did you know you had him on the line?
2: No, I wasn't sure, and I realised sort of how important. You know that was, and how hard the team had been working towards that that Tour de France stage victory. It was the, It was the objective of the team to win a stage of the Tour. Yeah. We went very close on a couple of occasions with Matt Goss in in 2012, uh, and then in 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 2013 there was a stage that I'd earmarked quite early on. We'd gone down there and we'd done some reconnaissance, so we'd ridden the park parkour. We knew exactly what we were in for. Um, we planned it meticulously how we we're going to go about the stage, and I got a. Uh, a textbook lead out by by daryl limpy and i managed to sort of launch my sprint at the right time and hold off a very fast finishing peter sargon but i didn't celebrate because i didn't want to celebrate too early it would have been it would have been (laughs) devastating to 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 celebrate thinking i'd won only to be pipped on the line by by peter sargon but I thought I had it, but it was, I, was, I was only yeah. going to confirm that once I saw the photo.
1: And at, set in train, a magnificent series of events. So the team wins the team time trial the very next day in Nice, and that puts you in the yellow jersey. With, with everything that represents is, is so special, only the six Aussie to do it. I imagine this must have been just the, the stuff of dreams. I mean, we can overcomplicate things, but how bloody enjoyable was that?
2: Uh, it was fantastic. And it was, it was such a fantastic team result as well. And I remember after the, the stage, you don't actually get the opportunity to celebrate with your teammates right away because you're whisked off to, to podium, podium ceremonies and doping uh, control and, and the, the, the rounds of the media. So you actually don't get to enjoy the moment with your teammates. They all celebrate in the bus afterwards and you're, and you're whipped off doing other things. So it was only once we, we transferred across from the island of Corsica to the mainland of France where we were staying in Nice the night before the team's time trial I remember having a glass of champagne with with the team and saying to the team, you know, how important every team member was uh, and how important a role they played in that victory. And that one stage win at the Tour of France, that was a catalyst of bigger things to come. And we had no idea what those bigger things were, but I knew that one result was going to inspire everybody to continue performing at that level. And we really did that the next day mm. um, in the in the team's time trial, where everybody just stepped up, and we delivered a, uh, the fastest ever team time trial in the history of the sport. And still, we still hold that record with the, with the Green Edge team along the Promenade des Anglais there in Nice. The, and by winning there by the smallest of margin is all it took to to move me to the top of the general classification and to take that yellow jersey. Now, what
1: we're not accustomed to seeing, though, is for riders who fight so darn hard to get this yellow jersey, and for many of them, they've been dreaming about it their whole life, is to get it and then hand it over. But on stage five, you thought about doing exactly that. Now, And when I say handing it over, essentially giving it to your South African-born teammate, Daryl Impey. I'm sure you've been asked this many times, thousands of times over the journey, but just at its core, why did you think that was the right decision to make?
2: Well, we're in a bit of a unique situation at the Tour de France where there were no time bonuses on the finish line of this edition, edition of the Tour. So the hierarchy on the group finishes was was set on stage playthings um, until there was a gap. And obviously there was a gap after the, the team's time mm. trial. But the gap was there was myself was leading leading the race with the yellow jersey. In second place was Daryl Olympia In third place was Michael Albusini. So we actually had the three top spots in the general classification. But looking back over the stage placings, I was only a small number of stage placings in in front of Daryl in in second place. So we were able to basically move things around if we decided to. And I know it's a huge honour to wear the the yellow jersey. It's the the most iconic jersey in cycling. And racing stage five at the Tour de France, I was riding along thinking how unique this is and how much of an honour this is. Yet in second place was one of my best mates and a guy that was instrumental in me taking that yellow jersey in and really helping me finish the, the job off to, to take the lead. So I thought, theoretically, there's no way I'm taking this jersey all the way to Paris. You know, I'm not going to win the Tour de France overall. Hmm. Come the big mountains, I'm, I'm seriously outgunned in the big mountains by the pure climbers and the GC specialists. So I'd done the math and theoretically I was going to be able to hang on to the yellow jersey for four days until we got into the big mountains of the Pyrenees. So I thought, rather than hang on to this jersey for four days and and really relish every moment of this jersey, and you know, arguably I could have done so, I thought I'm in a position here to change the life of of one of my teammates and give him the opportunity to to wear the yellow jersey as well, because for me it wasn't going to change. If I wore it for two days or four days, once you're a yellow jersey, wear you're always well yeah aware of the yellow jersey. So riding along on in stage five, this is all going through my mind within the stage. i actually said to daryl during during the stage hey listen, mate i'll hang on to the jersey today i'll finish up the front tomorrow i'll drop back uh you finish in front of me by the seven places that you need and you can take the yellow jersey from then on uh for the next couple of days and i said that to him and i got silence back and he, he didn't quite comprehend what I was explaining to him. And, and I don't know if he thought, thought through whether that was going to be possible or not, but I'd obviously planned it all. And he was so blown away by that opportunity. Like he couldn't, he's like, Are you sure? I said, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's do this. And he's like, All right, all right. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. And then in the hectic environment of, of racing at tour de France stage, in the crosswind or whatnot, there was a touch of wheels in the front. Next thing he's sliding down the road and he'd fallen off. So needless to say, Daryl bounced when he hit the bitch and he got up so quick and got back going again. He was in the bunch in no time. He was, <laughs> obviously wasn't hurt, but he got back up there and we managed to to get through that, get through the end of the stage. I hang on to the yellow jersey after that stage and it was actually, again, after the stage, he presented with a new yellow jersey and I was going through the, the media rounds and the podium protocol and anti-doping and all that stuff again. I was actually in a in a team car on our way back to the hotel. All my teammates were long gone. And I was in a team car with uh, Neil Stevens, who was a director of the team. I think the race doctor was there with us as well. A guy named Peter Barnes is from Adelaide. And Dan Jones, who we all know and love, who was the, uh, our videographer, our guy, who, who was producing the backstage pass at, at the time. And I said, guys, uh, just letting you know, tomorrow I'm going to give the allergies to Daryl and i got silence in the car and a little bit like when i explained what i was going to do uh, to daryl they were all just computing what i was actually telling them like what do you mean you're going to give up the yellow jersey this is what everyone works so hard for and you're going to give it away and then once they realized why i was doing and, and how i was going to do it they were right behind it you know and they they were really supportive of it and i think By doing that, it just really highlighted the the culture that we had amongst the the group of riders within the team. And sometimes I think the team management were a little bit slow to pick up on that, but we had a really special group of guys within that team. And that's the sort of stuff. I don't know if they were all prepared to do that sort of thing for each other, but that's something that I was definitely prepared to do. For, for some of the guys that were there to support me.
1: I love it that you just didn't waver for a second, even when you were just getting stuck. <laughs> blank looks uh, that was the first response. Oh, was it unprecedented? It ever, are you aware that ever taken place before?
2: I don't think it had. It was only, I probably didn't realize the, the significance of what I was doing or how, how it was unprecedented until I'd done it. And I had other writers come up to me, big stars of the Peloton come up to me the following days and say, <laughs> did you really like give that away? Like give the jersey away to, to Dale? I said, yeah, you know, I was going to take it to Paris. Yeah. You know, I've had it for a couple of days. I think it's great. He, he can wear it for a couple of days as well. But
1: they thought you and were nuts.
2: Like, <laughs> they were like, man, there's no way I was going to, I would ever do that. <laughs> and that's when I kind of think, oh, maybe, maybe it was a little bit special. It was a bit unique what I was doing.
1: Oh, we're talking to Simon Gerrit's on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We'll
0: be right back with Garrow after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Well, it's
1: been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. All thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, that family-owned business since 1934. And our guest today is Aussie cycling superstar Simon Gerrans. Gerrins, I've just got to ask you, we've mentioned Milan San Remo, but the other major, major one-day classic came at the 2014 edition of liege Baston liege another monument in cycling. And more history made, you're the first Australian to a thrilling race. And Dan Martin crashes on the final corner. You bridge across, surge for the line. You celebrated this one. Arms up, elation at the finish. I'm not sure if you stop picking your favourite kid, what one ranks more special than the other, but this would have to be right up there.
2: Oh, this is definitely my favourite kid. Uh, Liege Best on Liege. <laughs> yeah. No, and you both my aunt San Remo and Liege Best on Age are, are monuments. And there are only five monuments in the sport. So I have... So to have won two of them, uh, who's been pretty pretty special company in in cycling circles. But I picked Liège over Milan-San Remo quite simply because of the journey it took. uh, I went through to win Liège best on the age, and it's a race that I lined up in practically every year of my career that I was that I was healthy. And I think it took me about three editions of Liège best on the age just to finish the race. It was such it's such a grueling, tough day. And I made such a progression over the over the 10 years of, of racing liaison, um, from not even being able to finish the race to eventually being able to finish, then getting finishing in the third group, the second group to finally finishing the first group of the race and, and to be there to go for the victory and to pull it off. Um, it was such a long, a long process to, to get to that win. And once again, it was a, in an environment where the team were all there and all behind me on that day. Everyone had a job to do. Everyone really stepped up on the day to give me the best shot of winning the race. So for me, that was the the most special victory um, of all all my wins.
1: Physical strength, mental strength. I mean, all elite sports require them and and none more than your old professional. You clearly had the talent or you had the talent and you're able to absolutely squeeze the lemon dry to get the most out of your talent. But what about your mental strength and also your race craft? Were, Were they the two big things that you think maybe carried the whip hand when it came to these results was that what got you over the hump in the big
2: races when the margins are just so small racecraft was definitely a big part of it and i was very analytical when it came to my racing um i would always review assess and and not take notes but you know mentally take a lot of notes from the environment that i was in or the situation i was in and what I did right, what I did wrong, how I could do it better next time, if I ever come into that situation again, and the same similar situations do come up time and time again in cycling, never identical but similar. Um, so, racecraft was definitely a part of it. I was always able to put myself in a position. If I was finishing in the front, I knew I was in a shot, in with a shot of of winning, winning the race. The mental side of things is a tough one because a lot of these races, like Milan San Remo, it's a seven hour race, so to stay mentally on. And and so in so in tune with what's going on for that mm. period of time is mentally very taxing. But I think one of my biggest attributes of the sport um, was my commitment to it, and the fact that I would, as you said, I'd ring every last little bit of talent I had out to get those big results. Because I didn't see myself as the biggest talent in the peloton. I definitely didn't have the biggest engine. I wasn't the fastest fin- finisher. I wasn't the best climber. But I knew when I could put myself in that in that position at the front of a long, tough race, uh, that I was within a shot of winning.
1: Mm. And now, in one of your other day jobs, is, is commentary. So how do you assess the modern cyclist now behind the mic? I mean, seemingly nothing's left to chance in modern cycling. They know everything, the physiology. They know that, you know, all the data, the threshold power, they're getting younger. They're getting more versatile. They're faster. They're stronger. They're more street smart now than what perhaps they ever were. More technology, more analysis, the coaching expertise. You must sit back and think: if I was coming through now, how would I get on? It must just blow you away.
2: It does blow me away. But I think just going back for a second, I agree with all points of what you said there, with the exception of maybe the street smart, because <laughs> you see these 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 guys and they've got such big engines there. So physically, they are so good. Sometimes it's the way I watch them race, I'm thinking why are you wasting so much energy? Why are you putting in these big efforts now? This is not going to help you win the race. So it's an interesting being on the other side of the, of the screen and and sitting back in the luxury of a, of a comfy chair and and watching these guys duke it out. Um, But I'm in awe of, of the talent coming through these days and, and the professional peloton, there are such fantastic personalities out there, some fantastic talents and, and the sport professional, I think is in a fantastic place when it comes to the competition. So, I'm a big fan of the sport. I really enjoy the commentary. And it's nice to sort of, as I said, pick things apart uh, from, from the commentary tribune. And the
1: service score stuff is not too dissimilar to your racing careers. not I think you started off, correct me if I'm wrong here, if I got this right, an investor, a COO, and now you're the CEO. I mean, you've come almost full circle with this company.
2: Yeah, you could say that, and you know, as a as a bit of a side investment, um, a former teammate of mine founded this business a few years ago, and then I got involved to to help out. So eventually now I, I'm I'm running the show. But mm. it's a complex it's a complex beast. We've got a lot going on with the service course. Uh, there's a lot of exciting things happening with the business. Um, if any any of our listeners are, are traveling to Europe, I definitely encourage you to to get down to our store in Girona, which is the flagship store. That's the big one. We also have a presence in Nice. And like I mentioned earlier in the UK and we have our, our e-commerce platform as well. So we're selling our trips and our, our products online. Uh, there's a lot going on. We have you know employees uh, spread out over a number of countries. We have a couple of licensees as well. So we just opened in the Middle East late last year. And we've got a, a new opening coming early next year as well. So Gee. there's a lot going on, a lot of late nights in, in my house in, in in Melbourne.
1: I reckon the time difference would be a killer. But you had me at Girona, so that sounds absolutely magnificent. Uh, Simon Gerrans, thanks so much for joining us today, mate. An incredible journey, the accidental discovery of a sport that you not only became obsessed by, but you absolutely excelled in, of course. You are one of Australia's most decorated cyclists of all time and your resume stacks up with just about anyone. So congratulations on everything you've done Good luck with the future and thanks again for sharing it all with us today.
2: My pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me.
1: And thanks for listening also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online, find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.